Well, good morning. It's good to be back here with all of you all. And I've got exciting news. I know most of you are going to be thrilled to hear that we are returning to the book of Hebrews this morning. Oh, I saw some actual visible groans. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, the good news is we're through the tough part of Hebrews, and and that is the part where we're trying to understand what the author is trying to convey. What's important for us to understand is he's writing specifically to a Jewish audience and he's trying to appeal to them. He's trying to convince them that what has taken place in the life of Jesus Christ is greater. And I've stressed that or at least attempted to stress that through this last portion that we've gone through, through chapter 5, through chapter 7. This morning, we're returning to chapter 8. And here's the good news. It begins with... Now the point and what we are saying is this. Some of you might have even asked me that a few weeks ago before we took a break from the book of Hebrews. Now what is the point of all of this that we are saying? So I've got good news. You don't have to rely on me to explain the point. Our author realizes that what he has said in chapters 5 through 7 is a bit big. It's got a lot of threads connected to other pieces. You start pulling on one, you see all the other parts moving. I think we're about to make sense of this letter after all. At least I have hope that if I'm not able to help you make sense of it, that someday we can look forward to God helping us make sense of it together. But we'll be faithful and move on through the text. If you're looking in your bulletins, you'll notice that we're looking at the entire chapter. We're moving a lot faster than we did. We're looking at all of Hebrews chapter 8 this morning to look at what is a greater covenant afforded us by Christ. My point is this. What is all this talk about covenants? What is all this talk about how God relates with humanity? Just about every different view that you can take theologically speaking or or just academically looking at the Bible, says that the major theme from Genesis to Revelation is this word covenant. Here's why it's important. This is how God has decided to define His relationship with His people. He has commanded a relationship that is upheld through covenants in what He does. This is exactly what we find in Hebrews chapter 8 as we read that what Christ has established is a replacement covenant for what existed all throughout the Old Testament. Why does it matter? Because we just sang a song that affirms, He leadeth me. Here's the question we should ask. What does it mean when we say that God leads us? For the people of Israel, it would have meant that God led out before them as they crossed the Red Sea into the area of Sinai where they would become wilderness sojourner wanderers. It would be God that would lead out into conquest into the area of the Horamites, the Amalekites, and all those other ites. It would be God that went out before them. But in the New Testament, it's not simply God in a provisional sense going out before us. It is the Spirit 
God coming to take residence in the heart of the believer so that we would be transformed, so that our thoughts would change. The way that we think and interact with people would be so visibly different that it would be unmistakable that the Spirit of God was leading that person. The question we should ask is, what does it mean that God leads me? Does it mean whate'er I do, I shall go? Does it mean whatever I want to do, that's God leading me? By no means. It means that He leads me through His Word and through the conviction of the Spirit that continues to pull me into a transformative life that changes me. My actions will be reflective of that if He leads me. A life void of Bible study will certainly never be able to reflect such transformation. With that said, let's look at the text. And before that, let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you thankful that we have your word. Thankful that we are not only able to approach your word humbly, but with confidence that we will be able to understand it and apply it to our lives and our hearts because you do lead us. Father, I pray that you would guide us as we continue to worship your name through the preaching and the proclamation of your word, that we would engage with the text, that we would see that what you have done to give us this relationship is greater than anything we could possibly imagine and anything we could possibly deserve. Guide us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The text begins. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if at that first covenant he had faultless, he had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And... 
They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I have four main points this morning as we look at this text. And I realize it's a large section of scripture to look at in a sermon, a whole chapter. We're going to be here all morning. So I hope you all had a well-balanced breakfast. My children recommend cheese sticks. I mentioned to Miss Deanne that that includes high protein from the mozzarella as well as the carbohydrates on the outside and a healthy portion of fat in the grease that it was fried in. So that's a balanced meal as far as I'm concerned. What we need to know about this covenant first is that it's been improved on the original covenant. I said this covenant idea is something that throughout the entire Bible has been significant. What's significant about it? That an almighty, all-powerful, wonderful God declares, commands that he's going to interact with who? Humanity. He's going to interact with humanity on special terms. Now, why are these terms so special? It's because we're dealing with God. He's all-present, all-knowing, all-wonderful, all-good. We have to have special terms to know how to interact with Him, especially considering that humanity has fallen from the way that they were originally created and exists in a state of being totally depraved. Well, God's holy. We need special terms to interact with Him. What do these terms look like? Our author makes reference specifically to the terms and conditions set out as they came out of the land of Egypt. Now, there were covenants before that. We know there were covenants before that. I think there was a covenant in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. God's commanding His interaction with humanity. Sin ruined that one. And so the covenant changed a little bit as God made a special promise with Abraham. And He said, I'm going to make you a great generation as numerable as the stars in Genesis chapter 12. And this special promise comes with the wonderful revelation that you're going to be a blessing not just to your descendants or those that would come after you, but to all of the world. The whole world is going to be blessed through you, Abraham. And so they were. They became a fruitful generation. They went into Egypt. They grew so big, so populous that the leaders in Egypt got afraid. They said, this is a covert invasion. All these Israelites come, keep coming in and they're having more kids than us. We're going to be outnumbered. This isn't going to be Egypt anymore. It's just going to be Israel. My goodness, what are we possibly going to do? We might lose our racial or national identity. The people of Israel had been a tremendous blessing to the people of Egypt. In fact, I want to get sidetracked, but they were a tremendous blessing to the people of Egypt, save them through the drought season. That's why they were in Egypt to begin with. It was through Joseph's, through God leading Joseph, that they were blessed. The time came that Israel become their own nation. They become their own people, a people who are ruled by God. 
Not of people who stand up leaders for themselves. Not of people who follow rules that make sense in their own mind. Not of people who do what is right in their own mind and just trust that people are generally good and they have their best intentions at heart. No. This would be a people so scrupulously committed to serving God that everything that they would do would follow His commandments recorded in Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And parts of Exodus. You do what God commands you to do, and I will be your God. And it's a good thing that the nation of Israel was able to accomplish all of that, right? If you spend time reading your Bible, if you're going along in the Bible reading plan that we're going through as a church, we've just finished the book of Judges. That's not what the people did. Even with Moses there leading them, the covenant fresh on their minds, that's not what they did. They broke the covenant. They decided to worship the Baals and the Ashtaroth. They decided to worship false gods. They decided to take up practices that are reflective of the people around them. God told them to purge the land that He was giving them of things that did not glorify God. And instead, they left inhabitants there of the previous false god, idol-worshipping, no-good, fallen humans that they were supposed to be pushing out. Now this is the point in all that we have been saying, that this wonderful thing, this covenant that was given by God came with additional terms now than what Abraham had. It wasn't just promises, but it had a way that the people might be able to, quote unquote, restore themselves after they had fallen. They would be able to go and make sacrifices that would become the substitution for their fallen condition that they could be restored into a right relationship with God. They would be able to go and worship God as they failed, as they were incapable of upholding the law. They would be able to go and still commune with Him through this system of worship. But all the while, do you think this system of worship, this, this altar erected on earth, or this tabernacle, or this tent, or all these things that were constructed, do you think that they had any meaning whatsoever in the eternal heavenly places? I really don't think they did. Here's where I get by saying that. Verse... Oh... Is it verse 4? Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve, it's verse 5, they serve a copy and a shadow. All these sacrifices that they were performing, everything that they were doing is called a copy and a shadow. It's not the real thing. It's not any more real than your reflection in a mirror. And you might be able to see yourself. You might be able to see what it looks like. But it's not the real thing. Your reflection cannot decide to get up and walk and go do its own thing unless you've been watching too many sci-fi shows. 
What's taking place on earth then is a copy and a shadow of what? The real thing, which is the heavenly things. This is why when Moses was given the instructions for building the tabernacle, when he's given all of these rules, he's told to follow what God has shown him on the mountain. There's a heavenly tabernacle. There's a tent of meeting in the heavenly places that is the real place. There's an altar in the heavenly places that is the real place of sacrifice. When sacrifice is performed, it is a reflection of what is taking place in the heavenly places. It's not any more real than what I look like in the mirror, which is awful. And so I choose to reject that reality and substitute it with my own where I'm handsome. That's a joke. We have an improved covenant in that no longer are we depending on a reflection, but we are depending on the real thing. Because Christ has become our high priest, He has ascended to the majesty on high, He now is in the true place of worship. He's doing the thing of ministry where no one else can go. There's no reflection. There's no shadow. It's the real deal. Real, total, tangible, touch it. In the heavenly places. It's in the place of ministry. It's the true place of worship. It's where worship has always been conducted. And I want to stress that point because it's easy to look at this and to think that in some way that we've repealed and replaced what existed in the Old Testament with something new. And that's not the case. Even as a Levitical system was being practiced, the people were worshiping a copy or a shadow Their earthly sacrifices, their rituals were dependent on the sacrifices that were upheld by God's covenant in the real places, the typical places where these take place. They're still dependent on the perfect sacrifice. Not a bull or a lamb or a yearling, but Christ. Perfect. Able to empathize with those who He has come to save. Such a covenant is improved because it is more excellent. Our author makes this wonderful and astute observation in verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. Look at how our author is stressing this point. If you don't believe me, he says it's more excellent, it's better, and that it's enacted on better promises. This shadow falls short when we have the improved real deal before us. We have even better or greater security in our salvation because our covenant is not mediated by earthly priests that have been given a job to do, but our covenant is mediated by a greater priest, by Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of God. Our covenant is improved and more excellent, securing even a greater awareness of the salvation that is afforded to those who would believe in Him. God has assumed all that needs to take place in the commitments of the... Let me back up. The commitments that needed to take place in the Old Testament were building the temple the way that God had told Moses to build it, following these rituals the way that God told them to follow it, making sure that we knew what was clean and unclean so that as we lived our lives, we didn't make any mistakes, like accidentally, I don't know, touching a dead thing. 
that's bad news for most huntsmen and fishermen. You're unclean. Get out of the camp for seven days. You need to make sacrifice on the third day and on the sixth day. And then if you've made those sacrifices according to the law, then you can come back. Just saying. That's the law. Well, that's a lot of commitment to take up on man that's already fallen. What does it mean when we say that man has fallen? It doesn't, it doesn't just mean that, that man is going to do the worst thing possible every time that he has an opportunity to do something. It means that he can't help himself whenever he does fall. He's inclined to it. Because he doesn't even realize how bad it is. My wife has become very interested over the past three years of our marriage in, um, what are those theories called? Those, yeah, conspiracy theories, that's the word. Man, and some of them are so weird. And then there's some of them like, no, that's true. That is the truth. That is absolutely the truth. I have no doubts about it. What makes me sad is some of those conspiracy theories are so heartbreaking. I have no doubt that some of them are, are built and developed on a strong semblance of truth, even if they're exaggerated. So we were driving the other day and Michelle was telling me some of these fantastic ideas. I reflected, you know, I don't think until we get to heaven we'll be able to see just how awful the world is. Which is really saying something considering the fact that I think this world's pretty awful. Awful enough for me to be motivated to run to my Savior every single day and say, God, protect my children, protect my church, and dear Lord, protect me. It's a lot of commitment to put on fallen man. This new covenant is improved in that all of the commitments have shifted grounds. And they're no longer upheld by humanity, but they are upheld by a perfect mediator. The commitment on me is not so much in faithfulness or obedience or following terms or any of these things. It's rather that I would know God. Simply that I would pursue Him. And then if I trust the process, all of these other things that people are concerned with, following the rules and being a decent person, they follow naturally. I can't get it through my head. What makes it so hard for people to understand this? And it turns out it's just because I'm a judgmental Christian that I think this way. I don't get the obsession with being a good person. Everywhere you look, the moral teaching of the world says you just need to be a decent human being and all things are going to work out. If you understand the nature of humanity or how we were created or how these things came into being, being a decent human being leads to Judges chapter 19. There is no hope in being a decent human being, 
That's putting the cart before the horse in the plainest sense of that colloquialism. Get your heart right before God and then let the cart follow the horse. Trust in the singular, only mediator who could possibly transform your heart, mind, and soul. And these other things can be secured as well. Jesus Christ now ministers and mediates this improved covenant. Loved ones, I don't want to just point out that this covenant's improved from what existed before, but I also want you to leave here knowing this morning that it's an imperative covenant. Imperative covenant. Hopefully you've already picked up on this and the fact that God doesn't negotiate terms with humanity as an almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God. He gets to dictate terms. Now, wouldn't you like that? Next time you go to buy your car and you're dealing with car salesmen, you can dictate the terms to him. God doesn't negotiate. He is holy and greater than possible comprehension. This covenant that has been established with us is imperative. Look at verses 7 and 8. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The old covenant was flawed in the sense that the people could not keep it. Now, was God mistaken in giving them a covenant that they weren't able to uphold? No. It was because it existed as a copy or a shadow of the greater things that were to come. In this almost kind of slowly being revealed to us, what is God's ultimate plan? This has been the plan all along. The old covenant was flawed, not in the sense that uh, that God was flawed in creating it, but it did not reveal perfectly what God's plan was. This new covenant, well, it's not flawed. Now, looking at these differences between this flawed covenant and this other one, we find what is at the very core of saying that this is an imperative covenant. It's imperative because where the old covenant fell short was that people didn't actually know God. Now, stick with me. I I just told you that focusing on doing what's right or being a decently good person, we put that first, we're going to get it all backwards. God had a special relationship with a few people in history. Those people we know. Adam and Eve in the garden, he walked with them. Then there were Abraham, who had a special promise from God. And then there was this Moses fellow. And Moses' significance is that he stood before God on behalf of a huge crowd of people. This is the the great tragedy in the nation of Israel. In representing a swarth of human beings, do you think it was with any possible sense of confidence that anyone could say all of those people knew God? No. Even the entire nation of Israel, I don't think even coming out of the land of Egypt, all of them knew God. Brother Derek, where do you get by saying that? Because God has to keep telling them over and over and over again through five books of the Bible, know the Lord your God. I will be your God. Remember what I did for you when you crossed through the Red Sea. Remember that you walked on dry land, but that Pharaoh's army was swallowed up. Remember. 
Why would he have to keep saying it if they all knew him? They weren't able to know God because they were separated by their sinfulness. They were separated by misunderstanding. They were separated by where they were in history. This is a a terrifying thing for anyone that has raised children in the church. Our goal is that our children would know God. Not just that they would learn to do life the way that we do life in coming to church, but that they would have a real relationship with God. Not just a shadow or a picture, but that we would be able to see transformation taking place in their life. That we'd be able to watch as time passes by. The way that they interact with their fellow man doesn't just reflect decency and common goodness but it reflects genuine compassion and concern that is only possible through a Savior who has concern and compassion towards people. Why is this covenant imperative? Because there's no other way to know God than Him to place this covenant on your heart. You can read this whole book. You can ascend to high offices in the church. You could surrender to preach. We could license you and ordain you. You could be a a pastor of your own congregation. Know this whole book frontwards, backwards, inwards, outwards. Be able to speak in all the academically fluent languages and talk about soteriology and epistemology and anthropology, whatever, all your other ologies. And if you don't know God, it'll serve you no good. Likewise, you can... Serve your whole life in the church, coming to know all the things that you need to learn in Sunday school. Ascend into an office of authority and even an office of servant, of of revered service. An example to the church. Maybe even become a deacon. You could serve as a Sunday school teacher. You could serve in all sorts of positions and know the Bible. Be a decent and good person. What some would call an upstanding citizen. And if you don't know God, you're just upstanding by the world standards. It means nothing. Not only that, it will not save you when the day of judgment comes. It is an imperative covenant because we depend upon God to establish this new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We depend on God to replace the fault that existed in the old covenant that put obeying Him first so that our heart would be changed. Verse 9 tells us exactly where this covenant comes in being not just imperative, but being important for us to grow in our faith in Him. That this new covenant is not like the covenant that God made with Israel's fathers on the day when He took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. This is why. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them. This new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, He's going to put the law into their minds. He's going to write the law onto their hearts. He's going to be their God. 
And they're going to be his people. This is so amazing. Uh, I, I struggle to even begin to marvel at the fact that God is going to do this. I wish every class that I've ever taken in school, my instructor, were like God. That they could simply put everything that I needed to know into my mind. Some of you that have ever wanted to learn something, have you ever, like, you wanted to learn how to crochet? And so you sat down and you said, okay, I understand it. I read all the articles. I know that the hook goes that way and then this way. And then I've got to hold tension. I've got to do it that way and this thing. And then you sit down and you do it. This is just stupid. <laughs> oh, you have to struggle to learn all of these things. Or playing an instrument. Okay, I understand that on a trombone, to play B flat, that's first position. It's not complicated, complicated. I don't even have to know where the slide has to go. I just hold it right here, and I blow air, and typically B flat comes out. And then you try it, and you say, this is so stupid. (laughs) And you set it to the side. That's how I feel as I read the first five books of the Bible. This is how that sacrifice is going to go, and then there's a wave offering, and then you're going to take the thigh of this animal, and you're going to shake it this way, and you're going to sprinkle blood over here, and then you're going to spin around. And I don't take my word. Go study this stuff for yourself. This is just how I remember it. But I'm trying to put all of this together and understand the covenant that God's established with His people. I look at it, and I went, God, I want to know you, but I'm looking at all of this stuff in here, and... Dude, are you sure this is what you want me to know? It seems kind of stupid. But in this new covenant, he just puts it in your mind. He just inscribes it on your heart. In this new covenant, there's no struggle trying to figure it out because he literally leads you. Not just in reading the Bible and making sense of all of this stuff, but He's going to come inside of you and He's going to change everything about you. He's going to set aside the parts of you that struggle. He's going to take your sin and your temptations and He's going to comfort you through it. He's going to take the way that you work with people and He's going to make you infectious. People are going to see the way that you interact with the world and they're going to be like, I want to be like that guy. There's something different about him. He's got a real love and a real concern for God because he knows God. Not just in the sense that he knows his Bible, but in the sense that he spends time with him. Oh, this is an important covenant, particularly because we can be mindful of it. There is no possibility for a person that has been brought into this new covenant, look at verse 9, to not continue in it anymore. Because it has transformed us in such a radical way that there is, it's impossible for us not to ascribe to it. It's an important covenant because it's particularly meaningful to us. Verse 10 tells us that it's particularly meaningful to us because it's in our minds and in our hearts. He is our God and we are His people. 
It's memorable. Look at verse 11. The people shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. It's not just defining us, but it's memorable to us. What does this mean? It means grandfather, grandmother, mother, daughter, children, as you're teaching each other, as your loved ones and your kindred, your brothers and your sisters, and you want them to come to know the Lord because you've inherited something that's greater than anything you could possibly imagine. Quit putting the focus on teaching them everything that you know. And show them who you've become. Live out the faith in such a tangible way that it's unavoidable. The Bible warns us, sure, people are going to reject us because of this. Because you follow Christ, people are going to hate you. And all this and all the other business. You know what's strange? It's really hard, hard to hate a real Christian. They might step on your toes from time to time. They might make you feel insufficient. You might get frustrated being pointed back to the Bible. But you know what? It's hard to hate them. Somebody that's just dislikable or disagreeable, they aren't found in this new covenant. They're just not. The law has been written in their minds and in their hearts. Such a person reflects God in everything that they do and every decision that they make. It's particularly memorable for us because we're able to know the Lord through the relationship that He's established with us. Verse 12. It's particularly important for us because until we reach the day of glory in heaven, we continue to reflect the same fallen condition that made this covenant flawed when it was given to the people of Israel. We have a greater security in the fact that God says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Forgiveness is available in the greatest and most bountiful form through what is no longer a copy or a shadow of the heavenly places, but that is present on the real altar in the heavenly places where Christ is. Where He is our greater mediator. You're going to love this last point. It's very brief. This covenant's been implemented. It's not something that we have to look forward to like the nation of Israel did, as this quotation comes from the book of Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah originally wrote this, and so our author's quoting from an Old Testament book to tell them about this thing that's been greater. Verse 13, he stresses the fact we're not waiting anymore. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The copy is gone. We have the real Worship present in the heavenly places. We have all of this available to us in the immediate sense. This covenant's been implemented. 
so that we can say that the nation of Israel is the original branch on which the church has been grafted onto. Part of one vine and one lineage through the promises of God, inheriting all of the blessings that were afforded to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. As one entity, we are God's people. No longer defined by anything other than the fact that He has put His Word in our hearts. Father in heaven, we praise You. God, we praise You beyond all belief because we did not come to be a covenant people by our own means or our own um, trying to seek it out. But God, we became a covenant people because You sought us out. Because our hearts have been transformed. God, we don't want to know You because it's something that we desire to impress our friends. We want to know You because You've made us know You. Father, I pray for those gathered here this morning for Your church as we prepare to sing. God, that we would shout Hosanna and sing glory to your name, that we would lift our voices up in a way that would glorify you. And God, if there are any here this morning that do not know you, God, I pray that you would put your word on their heart, that you would help them to see their need for you, and that you would give them the confidence that they need to come stand before this church and declare that they're now part of the family of God. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.